everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the Thrive with Asbury Seminary podcast. I'm your host, Heidi E. Wilcox, bringing you conversations with authors, thought leaders, and people just like you who are looking to connect where your passion meets the world's deep need. Today on the podcast, I got to talk to Reverend Christy Lauren Adams. She is a speaker, author, youth advocate, and ordained Baptist minister. She authored Parable of the Brown Girl that released in February 2020. The book highlights the cultural and spiritual truths that emerge from the lives of young black girls. Parable of the Brown Girl has received awards for Best Young Adult Book from the African American Literary Awards and the New York Black Librarians Caucus. In March of 2022, her next book, Unbossed, How Black Girls Are Leading the Way, releases. She also works as Dean of Spiritual Life and Equity at the Hill School and is also an instructor of religious studies at the Hill School. She is the founder and director of the Becoming Conference, which is an annual conference and leadership cohort designed to empower, educate, and inspire young girls between the ages of 13 to 18. She's a graduate of Temple University with a degree in advertising and graduated from Princeton Theological Seminary with a Master of Divinity degree. I'm delighted to get to talk talk to Christy today. In today's conversation, we talk about her calling, her faith journey, what being an advocate means to her, and of course, her new book, Unbossed, How Black Girls Are Leading the Way. You can go ahead and pre-order a copy on Amazon or wherever books are sold. But in the meantime, let's listen. Christy, it is an absolute honor to get to talk to you today. I've really been looking forward to it and just so looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, me too. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, we definitely want to talk about both your books, Parable of the Brown Girl, and then Unbossed, How Black Girls Are Leading the Way that's coming out next month, I think, in March, right? Yeah, yeah. It'll be uh, March 6th, March 8th. March 8th. Okay. March, March 8th. I think that's International Women's Day, too, so how perfect. Did you pick that date on purpose or how did that work out? I I was happy that I mentioned to my publisher that, you know, March is probably a good day to, to, or a good month because it's Women's History Month. Um, And then they sort of came up with that and I thought, great. But both, you know, there are two books. Uh, The children's book will come out a little bit later, March 22nd, but the adult book will come out the 8th. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for making the time to talk to me. I'm sure the last month, month and a half is busy with editing and, you know, things like that. So Yeah, yeah. But it's, we're in a <laughs> pandemic, so who's really busy? <laughs> <laughs> That's, true. That's true. As I read both of your books, I I realized, as you probably already know, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but you have a very unique, unique way of making spiritual and theological connections from real life stories and experiences. Mm. So do you remember how and when you first encountered scripture? Well, I grew up uh, that sort of, quote unquote, grew up in the church. So um, my upbringing were parents who were uh, leaders in the church. And um, and so it was sort of a part of our weekly routine. Um, But prior to that, just some of my earliest, earliest memories are of my grandmother. Um, I spent uh, my summers just even when I was like two years old. You know, that was the thing with with our families. It was like there were a lot of kids and cousins and they would get dropped off in the south with the grandmother, Uh uh um, you know, um, when we were younger. And so 
my earlier experience are in, in North Carolina, uh, an area called Rocky Mountain, North Carolina. And um, my grandmother and my cousins, uh, my grandmother was a twin, so my great aunt was there as well. And my great grandmother and the three of them lived in a home. Wow. Um, yeah, I know. I'm like, I should write a book. Yeah, <laughs> really? The <laughs> stories that are there. I know. I'm just like, what? It's so rich. It's rich. The three of them uh, lived in lived in a, a one story house that, to me as a child, felt huge. Mm-hmm. You know? and again, I was like two and a half down there too. I was potty trained down there. You know, I'm like, mom, what are you doing? But my mom, <laughs> my dad, my mom was a um, a teacher and uh, and a special education supervisor for her um, for her district, but also for school. And my dad was a police detective in New York, and so you can imagine both of them pretty busy. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, so my grandmother had on her, uh, on her, on the table, these like our daily bread, um, like Mm -hmm. bowls, and there are these scriptures that were in these like little rectangles that you just pick out and they were these different colors. And I don't know what the colors were. I don't know if they were like Psalm, you know, but it wasn't all the scriptures. It was Psalms, Proverbs, some gospels. Uh And before we ate, we'd have to pick up one. Um, as like the cousins around the table, uh-huh. pick one and read it. Um, and I don't know, you know, I didn't know. And I, again, I, when I was two and a half, that didn't, this is a little bit later uh-huh. um, when I was able to. And so that was my earliest experiences with scripture. Wow. Read them around the table. And wow. it was just a part of, it was a part of what we did. Yeah. What a foundation to just have that just woven into your life. Like it wasn't a thing. It was just what yeah. you did. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 How, how did it move? How did you move from having kind of a, a family knowledge of faith to having mm-hmm. a more personal, I'm going to call it heart knowledge. I don't know if that's a good yeah. term, but like where it became real for you. Yeah. It started probably junior high, high. Once I was doing, you know, youth ministry stuff. And even then it was, still a part of our, you know, family and our routine. Um, but our youth ministry was evolving and, you know, you'll get the the speakers or the youth pastors that will come in and really make it personal. You know, um, there were a few moments, I think those seeds were planted that I think it started because I really didn't really begin to explore that uh, aspect of my faith until college, mm-hmm. but I'd be remiss if I didn't, um, acknowledge the fact that those seeds were planted, you know, maybe I think around junior high, high, where you, you start to take more responsibility mm-hmm. for your, you know, and it really happened. This might seem like a little bit of a tragic story, but um, not to make it go there. But my friend, um, a friend of mine was killed that I played basketball with oh. when I was 16. Oh, that's yeah. Rough. I was 16. She was 16. And we uh, we were played for rival schools, but we were on the same summer league. Mm-hmm. And her dad killed. It was a domestic thing, so her dad oh. killed her, her, her himself. Oh, that's so sad. He I'm killed sorry. her mother. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, but I I remember a conversation that I had with her. We also went to the same church, and I remember um, she was asking. I, I had asked her how come I hadn't seen her at youth ministry. And she said she didn't really believe in that anymore. And I, I remember just being like, oh, okay, cool. And so when she, when she died, 
I remember that I remembered that conversation so distinctly mm-hmm. that I was like, oh my gosh, you know, I didn't, oh my gosh, you know, um, I felt responsibility. You're a kid, you feel guilt, you know, there's a whole mm-hmm. lot there. Mm-hmm. And you're like, well, why am I a part of this thing if I'm not taking it seriously? If, if, you know, a moment like that for me, I felt was a missed mm-hmm. opportunity um, because you know, I was, had been attending and, and being a part of, of this, uh, faith community for moments like this. Mm-hmm. And, uh, for me to sort of brush it off again, I was a kid, but for me to brush it off, I felt like, uh, that was really when I started to take a turn. Yeah. Yeah. I think your mama, unfortunately maybe came sooner mm-hmm. than, than a lot of, for a lot of other people, but I know a lot of people are kind of maybe in a similar place to your friend and they're encountering things in the church that they're like, Oh, I thought it was this way, but what, what is being said and how people are living doesn't line up or there's, you know, just various struggles or like people Mm -hmm. get treated badly sometimes in the church anywhere really, you know, but especially in the church, I mean, we hold people to a higher standard and then it can be really disheartening. And I mean, for me personally, I've been kind of thinking about some of this too, like, maybe it doesn't work quite how I thought it was going to work. And I can be disenfranchised a little bit, mm-hmm. not to the point that I want to give up on it, but just kind of trying to um, make it align and like make it real and make it live. A lot of people are jumping ship, you know, mm-hmm. why have you chosen to hang on? So why should we keep choosing to hang on to this? Mm. I'm hanging on by a thread. Okay. You know? Uh, I'm very, (laughs) you know, yeah, I can't, I can't say, you know, I'm hanging on by a thread, which is very faith the size of mustard seed, you know, Mm -hmm. like that's, that's, if, if there's any scripture that has come to mind, uh, that seems so relevant to that analogy, it's that, right. I mean, it is quite literally, that's all I have. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's literally all I have left. And that's enough, right? That has to be enough. Yeah. And I think that, you know, we have preached that scripture, um, but this is, a, this is a time in society, particularly with everything going on, where many of us are living that. And to, to sort of eradicate the guilt behind it, you mm-hmm. know, um, of not doing these things that we did before that made us feel more spiritual or feel more connected or, um, you know, I just remember if I went to church on a Sunday, even if I barely listened to the preacher, I felt like I did something, Uh Uh you know what I mean? Like you, you sort of, your conscience was clear for the rest of the day, even subconsciously, you felt like I went to church. I did my thing, you Uh know? Uh Um, Wow. To go back and think about that, you know, that's where I am now. Just going back and being like, wow, those things that made me feel it's it's not enough. It's not happening for starters because of where we're at. But then also it's not enough. So I'm having to accept the fact that my hanging on a thread mustard seed, just a little bit of, you know, is enough and not feel bad about that, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. allow that to be enough for where I am and think that I'm also a believer that the prayers of 
previous prayers of pr- my previous life, those things are sustaining me even now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all those sermons I kind of listened to, but kind of didn't, you know, those times I fasted, you know, those, those were for moments like in seasons like now. Yeah. So I think I am. That's why when people say, oh, you're the manifestation of your grandmother's prayers or things like that. When I, I hear phrases like that, I also think that same thing for us, that mm-hmm. the seasons where we were more in it or, you know, all of those years that we were building something, a foundation, um, I think they were for times of drought. And that's mm-hmm. that's what we're in. Yeah. At our church, um, our pastor just concluded a series kind of what, not exactly what we're talking about, but he was talking about the seasons of relationship. Mm-hmm. And so there's spring when it's like everything's great and there's nothing wrong. And then there's summer and you're like, well, I have to put a little bit of work into this and like maybe start weeding a little bit, but still really great. want to definitely keep doing this. And then there's fall and you get a good harvest. And I mean, we've all heard this. And But then there's winter and you have to decide like things need to heal and things need to maybe change and yeah. and you just have to decide if you're going to reinvest mm. in in any relationship too mm. you know so mm. but what i also hear you saying is and what i hear other people saying is that we don't just want to go through the motions anymore we want it to be a real in a new way like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. very true yeah. yeah yeah so you currently work as the dean of spiritual life and equity Um, at the Hill School, and you also are an instructor um, of religious studies there as well. Um, Mm -hmm. But you've done work, you may still be doing work as an advocate um, for young Black girls. Mm -hmm. How did you experience your calling to that? I think it slowly evolved and sort of I came to the realization it wasn't like, you know, I wish I, I had out of college said, this is what I'm going to do. And there are some people that do know. I knew I was supposed to work with young people in general. Uh-huh, it's, uh-huh. it's still, you know, pretty consistent with what I do. Um, and even then, I wasn't really sure if, if you know, I was 21 when I graduated college. So I wasn't sure if I was like, was it because I'm young that I want to work with young people? Or is it because I grew up in youth ministry and, you know, there were people that worked with me and I want to, I was still trying to figure that out. And uh, it stayed with me. Um, in these spaces that I'm, that I'm in, whether I'm at, you know, Azusa Pacific University in, in California where I worked or, uh, Georgetown or at a residential treatment facility, you know, there is always, uh, because of my, my, my visibility in the positions that I have, um, I'm usually in spaces where there is a group of young black girls that gravitate toward me. Mm-hmm. Um, or that vice versa that I gravitate mm-hmm. toward, um, because I see myself, right? Like I see myself at 15 or 16 or 10 years old, and I want to pour into them in ways that I either that were, I was poured into. And then also in ways that I feel like I, things that I needed to hear advice, people that I needed, I want to be the person that I needed. Mm-hmm. And, um, so that's always just been a given. It didn't matter where I was, um, I wanted to, to do that. So if it was something as formal as the Becoming Conference, which I'll talk about, uh, you know, that's formalized or the, the, the counseling center piece when I was working as a pastoral counselor at a counseling center and was getting particular demographic of girls mm-hmm. or being at an APU or here at the Hill 
where it's a, a predominantly um, white space, however, where there's um, a subset of young black girls. Mm-hmm. That I might say, okay, come on over, you know, mm-hmm. that type of thing. Uh, for so long, I just, it was by default. It wasn't packaged. I didn't see it as like, oh, this is what I, you know, it was just right. what was happening. These relationships were growing and establishing. Wasn't until like, I don't know, maybe I think I was teaching vacation Bible school once at my old church and it was a group of girls, black girls. And um, we were doing this purpose worksheet of like writing down all your values. And it was a worksheet that sort of helped you come up with your mission statement. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was really great. And so I was doing it with them. And in that, the words advocacy, young girls, and you know, those types of things were part of mine. And I was like, oh, my gosh. That's part of my mission statement. That was really, it was really in the last few years that that, you know, came about. And then I, because of that, though, I was able to, I I had words to it, right? Mm -hmm, And from there, I was like, okay, I can be more intentional with it. So it's not just, oh, I just happen to be here and this happens to happen. So at the time I was doing the counseling and I started the Becoming Conference, which now will probably become a retreat. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was for, for young, I said at the time, black and brown girls, mm-hmm. uh, and I was doing a one day conference, but, um, I only did it two years and then the pandemic happened. Oh, okay. Um, couldn't do the conference. And then we did a little retreat last year with about 20 girls, mm-hmm. um, at a small, like a camp, you know, one of those like camp places in August. And so now that we're in this sort of post-pandemic world, I'm trying to think through, like, will we bring back the conference? I don't want to do a virtual. Some mm-hmm. things work really well virtually, but not always with kids and not always in the summer. They've been virtual all year, you know. Yes, for sure. Right. So I will likely scale down the conference to, especially now since I'm writing about leadership and stuff, becoming a, a, a leadership retreat where I just pour into a, a smaller group. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Since you're still thinking about what the conference looks like this year, it may be too early to ask, but is there a website or anything? There is a, uh, I mean, you can look at past stuff on the website, but I am becoming.net is the the website for becoming. And it shows you the coming conference in 2017 and 18. Okay. Um, And I think I put up some pictures from last year. I'm not sure. Okay. But that's where people. Instagram page too. Do what? I'm sorry. There's an Instagram page too. Okay. Uh, which is becoming conference. Okay. We'll definitely link to there so people okay. can look at the past and then that's where for the future, if they're interested. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Yeah. We'll definitely link out to that. Cool. So what does, you mentioned advocate and I wanted to ask you because that's, that's who you are. Mm-hmm. What does being an advocate mean to you? I first really, when I think of that word, I actually think about when I worked at a residential treatment facility right out of college. And they had, I wrote about it a little bit in parable, um, the intro, they had um, girls on a unit with a, a severe emotional difficulties. And they were about like, I don't know, 10 of them or 15. And each of the girls could have their own advocate. Um, we were residential counselors just working there or whatever. And um, if they so choose after a while of being on the unit for them, um, they could have an advocate. And basically that person would be their, their person uh, that would, you know, 
stand up for them that would be in, you know, if there was a meeting about them or if there was an issue that occurred, they'd be in the meeting or be in the meeting with the counselor. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they sort of favored them to an mm-hmm. extent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, you so one girl, Danielle, um, this was a long time ago, so nobody knows her name, but she was like, will you be my advocate? Wow. And she hadn't had an advocate. So when you when I'd come on the unit for my shift, it'd be like, hey, advocate, advocate, you know, like you'd hear them and then different girls had their own advocates and they'd be like, that's my advocate, advocate. And they just sort of like threw the word around, but it was so endearing. Yeah. And, um, and you, you really were, you mentored, you built the relationship with that girl and you loved all the girls, but you know, worked with yeah. all of them, but that was your girl. And that has stuck with me since then mm-hmm. um, to, you know, you're sort of the, the go-between, the, the person that defends, that sticks up, that, you know, speaks on behalf of, that articulates mm-hmm. what they can't articulate, um, wow. you know, that, um, that winds up being sort of the, the intercessor, right? Like yeah. when, Jesus said, when Jesus said, I'm going to send you an advocate, I'm going to send you a comforter, you know, I'm going to yeah. send you someone to, to sort of be there as that go-between. Um, that's how I see advocacy. Yeah. And what power in that name? Because I was using it just like when I asked you to define it, I wasn't thinking like you'd give me a Merriam-Webster <laughs> definition, but just to hear you tell the story of those girls mm-hmm. calling you that, like that was your name. They didn't call you Christy. Right. right. Yeah. Hey, advocate. I'm like, hey, it was really cute. It's really yeah. cute. So when, when I hear the term, that's what comes to mind. And I, I'm so happy about that, that that's some of my earlier experiences with the term because it's Mm -hmm. not so hard. That makes any sense. Yeah. 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 It's, it's more friendship Mm -hmm. based, like relationship based. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I loved reading both of your books, Parable of the Brown Girl and Unbossed, How Black Girls Are Leading the Way. Um, In both of them, you share stories, or especially in the first book, you called them parables. But I found it true in both books that I read um, that you you took life stories and used those to communicate everyday truth, Mm. which I thought was pretty awesome. So Mm -hmm. how have you seen God use narratives that often get ignored to teach us these important lessons? Yeah, I see it all the time with this particular demographic, since we're talking about the books. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're not paying attention. We're, I think as adults, particularly with young people, we spend a lot of our energy trying to pour in to advise, to guide. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but... How much do we spend on the opposite end of that? And because we're not intentional about that, that learning, that learning part, that it's a sort of a give and take, um, you're teaching, but you're also learning at the same time. Um, because we're, we don't go into these relationships with that perspective, it's so easy to just, oh, okay, whatever you have to say, you know, just to brush, brush off mm-hmm. what the, what the kids are, what the kids are trying to say, you yeah. know? Um, I talked to a girl last night cause I wasn't thinking about a third book. So I talked to one girl, um, we had about an hour long conversation and she just had a hard life. And, um, by the end of the conversation, I said, I'm going to ask you a series of questions, really not because I'm like interrogating you, but because I want to know, I want to learn. What do you mm-hmm. think about 
this, you know? And um, I said, what do you, what do you think about like, have you thought about why God put, you know, maybe put you in this situation? Do you feel like God put you in this situation or, you know, why do some people have certain lives and others have harder lives, you know? She said, I try not to really think about that too much. I do get angry, you know, but she said that, you know, the thing about me is that it's, it's the what, it's the what do I do with this life that I've been mm. given? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I asked her about prayer a little bit. I don't know if I worded it like prayer, but I had said something along the lines of like, well, what, what role does God play in all this? And she was saying that God... Uh, she's like, I know God can give me direction and ask for peace and things, but there's a lot of things that I, I have to do myself. Um, anyway, so later that evening, I was just thinking about the conversation and I was like, okay, like basically what she's saying is that we, we, we put a lot of it on God. You need to do this. You need to change, you know, all of that. But this girl has sort of come to the conclusion that God isn't like her magician, right? That she has mm-hmm. taken personal responsibility over her life. And um, that when she, when she needs God, she reaches out, but she's like, I'm very, I, I, I know that I, I am empowered, that I'm sort of, and I just, I learned a lot from that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's an example of how, because it seemed like people don't have these conversations with her, you know? Yeah. yeah and it's so important to listen like, how else are we going to learn? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, for sure. So Unbossed, How Black Girls Are Leading the Way, is an insightful inquiry into the lives of eight young Black women who are agitating for change, imagining a better world through a variety of leadership styles. Why was now the right time for you to write this book? Uh, because um, it actually started in 2020. Um on the heels of Parable coming out right at the beginning okay. of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really wasn't thinking about writing another book. Um, I really, that year I thought was going to be spent enjoying, you know, yeah. the fruit of what came from Parable, which we will go right into lockdown. And I'm. Yeah. And then quarantine and you're like. Right. <laughs> and I didn't want to write per se during that. Cause I was like, look, we're just trying to survive. I'm going to bake cupcakes and watch TV. You know, we're just going to yeah. do this. Um, but uh, for, in the midst of that, you you saw the the this generation of young people really were at the center of attention because everybody was like, "How are the kids doing? Mm-hmm. How's the class of 2020? You know, they can't they can't physically graduate. We're having virtual you know things on TV. Obama, I guess, had a graduation you know on TV and some other stuff like. And then the um, some of the, the the racial and and social unrest that took place mm-hmm. in the summer of 2020, who you saw at the forefront of a lot of a lot of that were young people. So mm-hmm. young people were the ones we were talking mm-hmm. about. It. We mm-hmm. were watching them, trying to see how they were, how was their mental health, you know, the whole thing. So I couldn't ignore it. Um, you know, when you when you see. Uh, one girl in the book um, and her her co-partner started their own organization called Gen Z. We want to live. And, you know, you hear read articles about her and her partner leading a 1500 person, you know, rally mm-hmm. uh, state house, you know, the Providence State House Capitol, you know, like 
and that wasn't the only, though those weren't the only ones. And it wasn't all about necessarily just sort of racial injustice, right? You just, you're seeing kids just be creative and innovative mm-hmm. and um, resilient because they're dealing with yeah. all the pandemic stuff and yeah. they were really rising. So that was why I thought, okay, this makes sense now. Yeah, you told a story about one girl who was diagnosed with cancer and then used her situation to go on and benefit other children. Mm. And I was like, wow, because I don't think that's what I would be thinking about. <laughs> no, I wouldn't do that now as an adult, <laughs> Yeah, uh, let alone as like a, a seven, eight year old, you know, at the yeah. time. And she's still continuing that. It wasn't a fad. Right. You know, that is very much who she is. Yeah. Um, they're remarkable. We can learn so much just from them. Um, I I am a big believer that, you know, these girls will be the ones we'll be reading about years from now or seeing them. And so I wanted to write, you know, w- w- their, their beginnings, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And not only that, I think like, man, what, what would it be? I think about like the Stacey Abrams or Kamala Harris or Michelle Obama, you know, like, Wow, what if I would have read a chapter about them when they were eighteen? You know, what what would that have looked like? You yeah. know, uh, now. So that was the direction that I went in. Yeah. How did you get connected with these young girls? Uh, some I knew already. Mm-hmm. Um, Sonia, the first chapter, I was already connected to her. She actually interviewed me for uh, my Parable of the Brown Girl book launch. Um, and oh wow! Jersey, yeah. So I that's how I knew. I was like, knew I wanted to write about her. Um, and I knew about Brown Kids Read. Some of the other ones I was, since I was home, I was able to, you know, do some research or I just saw their name, you know, on something. Um, but I tried to do some digging. I really wanted to do girls that were not necessarily like, you know, uh, Greta Thornburg, like, you know, she's, she's out, she's out there. You see her. So mm-hmm. I wanted to do the ones that are doing the hard work that might be a little bit more behind the scenes or may not have the national platform yeah. right now uh, or global platform right now. Um, maybe just doing some hard, you know, local work. So I did some Googling. There may have been an article that came up or or sometimes like for the climate justice, Amara, climate justice activist, I um was looking up another climate justice activist that was, you know, in the public eye a lot, looking at some of the organizations that she was a part of. And if you go on and you see like, you know, meet the team or who the team members are, you you see a whole list of other young women. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's how I found her. That's how I dug. You can, you can see, you can look at the ones that are really in the public eye. They're likely working alongside some, some people that are um, just as strong as they are. Yeah. Yeah. I really love how you found those who might not be as well known to kind of shine the light on them so Mm -hmm. that, yeah, that's really cool. Mm -hmm. I also noticed, I like to read book dedications. I noticed that you dedicated your book to your sister, Chloe. Um, Yeah. How does she inspire you? Oh man. Well, Chloe hasn't been inspiring our family since she was born. She's 13 years younger than me, um, oh. which means I was 13 when she was born and quite the temperamental teenager. Uh-huh, um, uh-huh. So it wasn't like good news that, you know, <laughs> when uh-huh. I was like, we're having a baby. It was like, this wasn't good news for me. My, brother, <laughs> my older brother, you know, he's just a boy and he's older and he just, okay, fine. For me, it was, she was a threat, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
And uh, of course I grew to love her, you know, what do you, what happens, yeah. but it was, it was very slow, um, you know, a slow, like, ugh. but uh, I can't really, you know, just watching her grow up. She's 27 now. Um, you know, I think on her birthday, I was like, man, like, what would our family have looked like at all if Chloe hadn't been born? You know, uh-huh. she very much is the glue, you know, uh-huh. and um, she's uh, she has sort of walked her own path. But she's been, you know, you can, you know, she's been influenced and just honors um, her family and her upbringing. But she uh, is also very sort of uh she's very, she, she uses her gifts very well. She stays true to mm-hmm. who she is. Mm-hmm. Um, and she walks that balance really well. A lot of times you have like, with well, she's not a kid, but younger people, you know, it's one or the other. They either are just a express image of how they grew up and just sort of, that's what I'm dealing with a lot of my teenagers now. Some of them are like, I'm just going here because my dad wants me to go, or I'm just, you know, to college or, you know, they're, they're doing what their parents, you know, are influencing them and wanting them to do mm-hmm. um, and wanting to go another way, but, you know, stuck or they're just completely rebellious. Whereas I think Chloe does a great job walking yeah. that line. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's been fun to watch her. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm an only child. So yeah. I kind of envy like sibling relationships a little bit, you uh, know? <laughs> yes. Well, I, you know, what's interesting when she grew up, I, I was mostly concerned. I'm like, man, she's going to grow up and feel like an only child because her siblings are, you know, my brother was 17. I was 13. He was on his way out to college. So I was thinking she was just going to be on her own. But um, we really made sure that she had that relationship. There are usually there are a, some sibling relationships that where they have that big of an age gap. Mm-hmm. They don't even know. They don't even know each other. You yeah. know? So we wanted to make sure that that didn't happen. Yeah. When I was born, I always wanted an older brother. So I'm not sure how my parents were going to make that happen. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but yeah, so I think that's pretty awesome. So as you wrote Unbossed, How Black Girls Are Leading the Way, what did you, what do you know about God now that you mm-hmm. didn't know then? Mm. That's a interesting question from us because I would get that normally for parable because parable is so it's spiritual on purpose. It's theological on purpose, whereas uh-huh. lost it, not so much. Right. Right. Um, it's more about an affirmation as opposed to what I know now that I didn't like I, these girls are, whether they believe or not, and mm-hmm. some of them have strong convictions about their faith. Um, but regardless, they have strong convictions about their calling. I mean, mm-hmm. they are like certain this is what I was put on this earth to do. Yeah. Um, and wow, you know, uh, to be young and to be that sure. Um, yeah, I'm I a little think, jealous of that. Yeah, person. right, right. <laughs> jealous now because, you know, I feel like I've made contributions. But I, I was just telling a friend of mine today, I was like, I'm thinking about, you know, as I get older, I'm like, I want to have a meaningful contribution to this world. Mm-hmm. And what does that look like? Um, even for me beyond books, you know, just in, in different types of practice. Um, these girls really push that, you know, push me there. Um, Sanyu was very much like, this is my purpose. This is my calling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and this is, and so that's, 
that's where they wake up. They wake up in the morning and they think about their call. They just do it. And I'm like, oh, God, like, I'm not there, <laughs> you know, yeah. but I need to see my life that way. Um, and I, I want to I want to live my life in such a way where it just it so naturally comes out of me to like you talked about Grace and her illness and all that. She just I'm going to serve. Mm-hmm. serve other people. I'm going to do, you know, and I'm like, oh, I, I spent a lot of time reminding myself, you know, like, oh, right, I got to do this. Oh, right. I got to get back to this. Whereas these girls don't do that. That is essentially who they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, as I read the book, um, a quote, I don't remember if it was from you or you were quoting somebody else. So if I need to give credit to somebody else, I apologize okay. to them. <laughs> um, but you said, do work you love regardless of income or whether it ever becomes a career is the key to fulfillment. Ooh. And so I read that and I was like, I want that too. How do we find our passion? Yeah. One of the girls said that. Okay. I don't know which one. Uh, it sounds like Kennedy. Um, I need to know the book very well. <laughs> getting there. You know, you can write I a book. Written, like, yeah, I should have written it down too, not just putting quotes around what I liked. Kennedy, do work you love. Say it again. <laughs> um, do work you love, regardless of income or whether it ever becomes our career, is the key to fulfillment. Okay, so that's either Kennedy or Sanyu. Sounds like one of the two of them. <laughs> I love um, how you know the girls so well that you know what they're going to say. <laughs> this sounds like something one of them would say. Uh, I remember in when I was writing about Sanyu, she was talking a lot about how she wants to make money. So that's mm-hmm. why I think that might be her. She wants to make money doing what she does, uh, but that's not. The, the focus uh, mm-hmm. for her. Um, so what do you, you know, what, what do you, what you love to do um, that should drive you that passion behind it. Um, but I think so many of us need to identify that, be able to articulate like what, what do we love? You know, um, for me in my own life, you know, I think about my job and some people it's like, just what I do here at the Hill and the title and all that, for some that would be enough. That is part of who they are. And mm-hmm. it kind of is. Um, but I know there's other, there's other aspects to my calling that this space alone doesn't, um, doesn't fulfill. And I was talking to someone the other day about career and vocation and like sort of like the difference. And um, this is very much a part of my career. And I think I'm, living out aspects of my calling here at my job, but because it's not my vocation and the totality of my calling, this is not enough. This can't be enough. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, now I have to seek out other ways of, of fulfilling that calling and the book writing and some of the other things that I do is that, but I'm now in a place where I'm still thinking that through even more. Um, now, some people are just doing their calling, vocation, career, all of it is all mixed in one. Some people uh-huh to do that and that's totally fine but then there are others of us that are like well no until I can get to that place I need to work retail you know I need I need to make some income and work and do whatever and God could have still called you to those spaces where you're doing the Lord's work in some way right like but at the same time that's something that I constantly have to ask myself am I fulfilling my calling in all aspects of my life and if not what needs to change shift or where, do, where else do I need to be putting my attention? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. How much, I'm not quite sure how to ask this question, so you can help me out or whatever if we need to, but I'm just kind of thinking about, you highlighted eight Black girls who are doing really amazing things. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine that like all girls, all women, we we have some of the same struggles. Mm-hmm. But it's different for for black girls because there are different struggles that go along with that. Um, how is it different and why is it so important that we understand that? Mm. And then, you know, can, yeah, I'll end there. No, I no, might no, have a follow-up question. That was good enough. Yeah. I could have written Unbossed How Young Girls Are Leading the Way, which was the first direction that I was going in. I feel like I saw it recently. I know somebody's writing a book about teenage activism and girls. But it's not the same book. But anyway, um, so I think that book might be being written. But um, but I could have gone in that direction, and it would have been a similar sort of looking book and and sufficient. Um, it is what I think I thought about originally. Actually, I was just going to do young people. Mm-hmm. Uh, then it just narrowed it down, and then as as a a sort of follow up to parable, it made a lot of sense to go in this mm-hmm. direction. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but all that to say, you know, there's one girl, Mara, the climate justice activist, and I learned so much from her and I've only had one conversation with her. Uh, it was long, but one. And when she was talking about environmental ethics and climate justice, I thought she was talking about how her racial justice activism, like it was like inevitable, like it, it, she couldn't separate the two, even though a lot of her focus is on climate justice. Mm -hmm. She talked about, you know, growing up um, in Maine, she loves Maine. She talked about how there are some, what she calls, well, what is called sundown towns. Oh yeah. You can't go into, you know, after sundown, if Mm -hmm. you're driving around and you're a black person. And she was like, they're, they're, she talks about being outside outdoors that is an environmental ethics issue, like a, but that, that racial justice sort of intersects with that. Mm-hmm. She mm-hmm. talks about growing up and how uh, some, uh, you know, how socioeconomics and race uh, sort of intersects and how that sort of makes for certain types of demographics to grow up in certain areas. And when they grow up in this area, their housing is such that they're not around a lot of greenery. You know, the houses mm-hmm. are on top of one another mm-hmm. and they're just with a street or whatever. And that's fine. And, uh, but she was like, she didn't have access to, um, to the environment or how there's certain areas that are mainly black uh, areas, uh, African and African-American areas in Maine where they're, they're living literally near like a coal mine. and. Um, I've read this in uh, Jonathan Kozel's Ordinary, where is it? Res- Ordinary Resurrections, he talks about in Harlem, um, how there were certain areas that were by these like industrial plants that were causing the kids to have asthma. Mm-hmm. You know? And these are mainly black and brown kids. And the last example that she used, uh, well, when she was talking about growing up in a certain environment, not having access to the outdoors, she's like, I want to love, I, she had a love and a passion for the outdoors, mm-hmm. but she was like, but I, I don't have access mm-hmm. um, to the outdoors in ways that others do yeah. that different types of environments. The last thing she mentioned was she was talking about Trayvon Martin and when he died and how 
Um, you know, he's walking with his hood outdoors. And so she was like, that was a racial issue to be a black kid, just being able to walk outdoors. Mm-hmm. Well, I say all that to say something like environmental ethics or her being a climate justice activist. If she was, uh, if the race and her being a black woman were not a part of that, I wouldn't have gotten that component to it. Right. We would have just talked about climate and that's all well and good. But she's sitting here saying, do you notice these other these other things? These are environmental ethical issues that intersect intersect with race. Um, and I was like, wow, I never really looked at that, looked at it that way. I never thought yeah. about Trayvon Martin as now people have to have their talks with these young black boys and say, make sure you don't walk out in the dark after a certain time. Make mm-hmm. sure you don't. Walking outside is an issue. That's an environmental issue. I was like, wow, that's powerful. So it's those types of things that intersect their the intersection between their blackness and their 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 gender too and their activism. That's what I learned from a lot of these girls. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I also reading the book saw a lot of hope Mm -hmm. um, for the future. Mm -hmm. Um and just because I think you said, I think it was this book. I've read both of them, so I don't want to get them confused. Um, but you were talking about how our generation, like we might have started life with a little bit of hope, but then September 11th happened mm-hmm. and the recession of 2008 or whatever. And then now this. And so, I don't know, It's hard. Yeah. it can be hard to like find hope. But reading this book, they are bringing the hope. I mean, because I feel like they were born into a world that we all had like, it has no hope, but they were really right. born into a world that had right. no hope. And so they're like, well, we're just going to bring it because it's not here. Right. They don't know, you know, to I remember I had a conversation with a 10 year old and uh, I said, I never had um, active shooter drills growing up. We had fire drills. And she was like, you've never had an active shooter drill. And I was like, no, <laughs> she made me feel like it was like, I never had it. But she was looking at me like I was ancient. And I'm like, wow, this is what they, I mean, pre-pandemic, right? They were still looking over their shoulders, you know, hopefully nobody will shoot up this, this, mm-hmm. our school today. Yeah. Um, and they are, they were literally, a lot of them were born, uh, you know, born around 9-11. So they were born mm-hmm. into, this, into this world, yet they are so hopeful. They are so like, I'm going to be this. And they're so creative and innovative. and um, they just, they see, they're not as negative as we think they are. I think the adults are more negative. You know, kids are still <laughs> like, yeah. see the possibilities in this. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I love that. What do you hope as readers read your book, what do you hope that they take away from it? Mm, I think a few things. Like I said earlier, I hope that they um, feel good about where the kids are headed, you know, the mm-hmm. kids are all right, um, that they uh, learn themselves in the ways that I, that there are bits and pieces the way I learned from Amara that they are enlightened by. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I hope they learn about particularly the ones that are like, feel like they're called to leadership or already leaders, that they learn about which leadership style that they may fit in, mm-hmm. if it's those eight, if not, you know, but but they see bits and pieces of their own, you know, like, mm-hmm. I'm not sure what my particular, I, I never really reflected on that. So the thing I want them that I'm saying, I want them to walk away with, I'm like, what did I walk away with? <laughs> I'm like, what kind of leader am I? I think I'm more of a strategic leader. Um, but I, I do want them to 
think about all the leadership styles that they saw yeah. and no matter their race or gender or whatever to say, oh, I'm, I might be more of a pace setter like Kennedy, you know, that type of mm-hmm. thing. I, I'd love yeah. people to say that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's so important for young people to be able to see themselves mm-hmm. doing things that when I was their age, I never would have imagined. Nope. Right. No. Right. Yeah. yeah. Their peers, you know, that's another thing I do for the younger ones that wind up reading it. You know, I do want them to say, oh, another 15 year old. I'm 15. You know, sometimes I can do that. Yeah. Sometimes we'll share and say, oh, you should read this book about this ex person who is older, which is fine. And then then that's representation. But another form of it, too, is, wow, this 13 year old did that or, Mm -hmm. oh, she's in college. I'm in college. You know, that type of thing. Yeah. I think it was Taya who was already inspiring. I forget the other one's name I should remember, but Taya was already inspiring somebody else to go oh, on and do the very yes. thing that we're talking about. I think it might've been Jay Shell um, because I think, yeah, yeah, sorry. I'm thinking about Jay Shell because she was one of the first conversations I had, but she was talking about how that started with March for Our Lives for her yeah. part of it, you know, that she watched the March for Our Lives um, kids and was like, I'm going to do something similar. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was her. Because then I later when I went back and interviewed uh, Tia, she was like uh, telling me about that. And I was like, wow, there was a girl that I'd interviewed that didn't necessarily mention your name, but mentioned seeing you all. Yeah. And, um, you know, the one the, the thing about Tia, I'm going to I'm going to do these Instagram live conversations on Sundays starting not this Sunday, but next Sunday with each of the girls every Sunday. And, um, and some of the girls are still like, I've got my organization. Some have gone to, you know, gone off to college and still trying to do. And one Tia is like, nah, like I need a break, you know? Um, and I remember being like, oh man, you know, you're not doing what I wrote, you know, in the book, <laughs> but it's, she, she, that's teaching me, you know, she went through something hard with the, I mean, obviously with the Parkland shooting what that does to your psyche, then mm-hmm. diving into doing activism work. Um, why, why should she still be doing that? Mm-hmm. Why, 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 why shouldn't she, you know, take a break and go to Stanford, do her work and focus on being a 22 year old, you know, mm-hmm. or however old she is now. And she's like crocheting hats and stuff like that. You know, she's just exploring these different parts of, but she, she stepped back. You know, now mm-hmm. she's going to therapy. She wrote, in the, I, I wrote in the book that she'd said, I just, she just started going to therapy mm-hmm. you know, two years after. Um, she just went full out. And that's the other thing for these kids too. They're in the midst of all this sort of tr- trauma, um, particularly now with the pandemic. And there's going to be a point where they need, to, they need to step back and they need to just focus on themselves. Mm-hmm. We want to see them. We want them to be doing things and to perform and show us that you're the hope. Um, she's showing me that she's the hope through her just being like, mm-hmm. I'm not doing it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that you need a break and you need to take care of yourself. Yeah. 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 That's a good lesson, mm-hmm. too. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, we've talked about a great many things and I've so enjoyed our conversation before we have one question that we ask everyone, but before I do, is there anything else you want to mention that I didn't know to ask you? No, this is great. All right. Well, our last question is because the show is called the thrive with Asbury seminary podcast. What is one practice that is helping you thrive in your life right now? 
so I have a Peloton. Nice. I want a Peloton. <laughs> you won? Uh, no, I want oh, one. I was like, you want a Peloton? I Maybe we speak that into existence. <laughs> I um I have a Peloton upstairs and I have like some little weights and stuff. And one thing I've been doing, particularly the last, I'm trying to do throughout the winter is do something for my body every day. It's not like a weight loss journey or anything like that. It really is very much a, like, even if it's 15 minutes, half hour where I am like tending to my body, mm-hmm. um, that's how I'm seeing it. And like, it's actually been like, a little bit liberating because before it was like, I got to work out because I want this outcome. I, you know, those are the types of things that you're trying to get an hour in or whatever. And no, I'm like, no, it's sort of, I'm seeing it like body ministry, particularly mm-hmm. when the stress, I had a massage the other week for my birthday. And so they're like, nice. oh, you're, you know, you have, they say you carry a lot of stress in your shoulders. Mm-hmm. We're carrying a lot in our bodies, particularly now, mm-hmm. stress and anxiety you know, and with it being winter, if you're in the colder months, those that live in colder areas geographically, it affects your bones being cold. You tighten up, you know, the whole nine. So I've just been like, okay, how can I get my bones lubricated and my body moving? And, you know, I, you still feel good about yourself because the endorphins come, but like just doing something doesn't have to be long. There's have to be this long out, you know, this outcome, but where I'm just allowing my body to move and, you know, whatever I'm carrying on it, you know, allowing it to move so that the things that I'm carrying and building up that are, have a little bit of a release. Yeah. It's really helpful, particularly in the winter. Cause it's like, you don't want to work out. <laughs> yeah. I just want to lay on the couch. I don't want to do anything, you know? Yeah. Um, but in the summer, it's easier to work. I'm going to go for a run. You know, you just, you're motivated. Mm-hmm. Um, but now is the time for me because this is the time where I just don't want to do it. Everything yeah. is like telling me like is against the whole thing. Yeah. So even today, I'm like, it doesn't matter what I have going on. I'm on duty tonight. I'm like, okay, how can I find half hour to tend to my body? Yeah, I love that. And I love that perspective that it's just I'm taking care of my body. I'm not trying to get fit for summer or, you know, whatever. <laughs> right. I'm like, oh, I want to kind of reevaluate why I work out. You know? mm. Yeah. So thank you for that. And thank you so much for this whole conversation. I've so enjoyed it. (laughs) Me too. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me for today's conversation with Christy. Isn't she just the best, you guys? I could not have enjoyed this conversation more and so appreciate her taking the time to share with us today. I just found so much hope in the stories of these girls that she shared and I'm just inspired to look at the generation coming behind us and see the ways that they are doing things that I think our generation never really imagined and that just I'm just really hopeful right now and just so appreciate her work with these young women and sharing these stories. Like I said at the top of the show, if you haven't already, be sure to pick up a copy of Unbossed, How Black Girls Are Leading the Way. It comes out in March, but you can go ahead and pre-order your copy today. So thank you so much for joining me for today's episode with Reverend Christy Lauren Adams. As always, you can follow us in all the places on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at at Asbury Seminary. Until next time, I hope you'll go do something that helps you thrive.